Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, May 11th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to keep it really simple this week. There is one huge story above all others, and that is the firing of former FBI Director Jim Comey. On Tuesday, uh, President Donald Trump terminated him uh, four years into a 10-year term as FBI director, and we're going to be talking all about that this week, what it means for the investigation to Russian hacking and meddling in the 2016 election, what it means more broadly for President Donald Trump's administration, whether Congress is going to uh, kick up its own investigations into these same issues, and more. And we're also going to check in on a little bit of a running theme that we've had on this podcast, you know, taking a look at some of the internal dynamics within Donald Trump's administration, particularly his White House, and particularly Eliana Johnson is going to tell us within his National Security Council. So all that and more on this episode of the Nerdcast. Some quick housekeeping before we dive in. Remember, you can email us with questions at nerdcast at politico.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And remember, the more reviews and feedback we get, the higher we rise on the charts and the easier it is for more people like you to discover us and create Nerdcast Nation. One more thing along those lines, we've created a survey to better get to know our listeners and to create an even better show. So please take two minutes of your time. Go to politico.com slash podcast survey and fill it out. That's one word, politico.com slash podcast survey. All right. And before we jump in, let's introduce everyone. Uh, National political reporter Eliana Johnson, greetings and salutations. What's up, Scott? Just trying to change it up a little bit. Change it up. (laughs) Chief investigative reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hello. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump right into our big segment number one, and our data points are 10 and 4. Ten years is the length of an FBI director's term. Uh, Four years is how long James Comey lasted from 2013 until President Donald Trump abruptly fired him on Tuesday evening. Uh, How sudden was this? Comey was in Los Angeles and learned about it on TV. So, Ken, uh, Tuesday had been shaping up as one of the quieter days of Trump's presidency so far. What happened? Oh, well, what happened is that Trump decided to be Trump in a big way. Uh, we, uh, our our uh, colleague Josh Dawsey did some amazing reporting behind the Comey firing and uh, what he reported that, uh, th- that Trump had grown increasingly frustrated with Comey and with the ongoing investigation that Comey and the, and the uh, FBI was leading into uh, the Russian meddling in the, in the 2016 presidential election, as well as Trump's 
uh, uh, ties uh, between Trump's associates and Russia. And uh, he, Josh had this great detail in his story. He, repeat, he, he has Trump repeatedly asking aides why the Russia investigation wouldn't disappear and demanding that they speak out for him. That is the aides. Trump would sometimes scream at television clips about the probe. A lot of people picked up on that nugget. Uh, it was one of the many reasons why Trump had sort of uh, why, why the explanations that we heard from behind the scenes as to why Trump had lost confidence in Comey public. He issued a letter uh, that uh, he actually had his ex uh, bodyguard, a guy by the name of Keith Schiller, who I've written a bit about, who is now serving as director of Oval Office Operations, a kind of vague and ambiguous title that allows him to be uh, basically Trump's protector. In this case, he was Trump's hatchet man. He brought this letter to the FBI while Comey was in Los Angeles preparing to speak at an FBI recruiting event. And the letter is pretty simple. Trump sort of shifts blame, says he's he's received uh, uh, encouragement or justification, maybe, from the attorney general and act and, and deputy attorney general recommending his dismissal uh, and blaming it essentially on Comey's handling of the FBI's investigation to Hillary Clinton's handling of of classified information, which, if you remember back during the campaign, was something that Trump was a big fan of. Uh, that is that he cheered the FBI on in this regard. And so uh, the explanation, I think, struck a lot of folks, myself included, as disingenuous at best. Yeah. This, Nancy, can you uh, fill in a little bit of what happened here? The, again, we've got the all of the behind the scenes reporting from Politico, from other outlets, suggests that Trump was getting more and more agitated about this and wanted to uh, fire Comey. But the official justification was far different. Well, the official justification has changed a few different times. But, um, you know, recently the White House has said they thought that Comey did a bad job. You know, they thought that he just wasn't up to it. And then they also brought in um, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions and one of his deputies who basically wrote this whole memo after meeting with Trump that outlined all the ways that they thought that Comey was deficient. And basically, um, you know, initially the White House really used that memo as evidence of why they thought that Comey wasn't up for the job. They sort of later changed the story and said, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't DOJ's doing. It was really Trump's decision. So they've sort of gone back and forth on that. Um, but, you know, really, they're trying to paint Comey as someone who is, uh, you know, inadequate. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, even said yesterday that there were atrocities committed. She didn't specify what that was. The. The other thing that stuck out to me about this is that uh, apparently the the White House did not think this was going to be the enormous press event and like seismic uh, cre- create this like seismic blowback that it did. Look, I I actually don't think that's totally true. You know, there were people in the White House who warned the that's president, true. including Steve Steve Bannon of all people, that he didn't think the timing was right on this and. I think that's absolutely true. I, you know, a lot of people, uh, many Republicans wanted the president to fire James Comey, who I think uh, really had lost the confidence of Republicans and Democrats alike um, because of his actions during the election. But the problem with this was the timing and the manner in which it was done. Um, we were talking about Brett Stevens's uh, New York Times column uh, before we started, and he said, um, you know, he says that. Um, 
after the White House learned that Mike Flynn, the national, the former national security advisor, had misled them, the White House waited 18 days, sort of weighing the case. Um, in the, in this case, it was so abrupt, and and he says, you know, firings on The Apprentice had more class and ceremony than this. <laughs> and Comey learned about it um, from television reports. So I think the issue here is um, is the timing and, and the manner in which this was carried out, and Comey learning about it from television reports, people in the White House not knowing that um, that it was going to happen, including many people in the press operation. And that's why this was such a fiasco. It's not uh, It's not so much the fact of the firing um, itself, which really should have been done, um, you know, if it had it been done the first day of the administration would have been far less controversial and, in fact, would have been praised, um, I think, by, by many people uh, in Washington. Yeah, Eliana's right. I feel like if, if Trump had just fired uh, Comey early on and Comey was pretty politically isolated, you know, Democrats were angry with him for his role in uh, the 2016 election. They felt like he screwed it up for Hillary Clinton. Republicans didn't like him either. If he had done it very early on before it was so clear that he was leading these um, investigations into the administration's ties to Russia, then I don't feel like it would have been a big deal at all. But, you know, it came out, uh, we reported yesterday and so did the New York Times and a few other places that, you know, Comey had asked for more resources for this investigation uh, and that he was fired shortly thereafter. Uh, the Department of Justice totally denies this and calls this false. But, you know, that is what uh, seems to be the case. And I feel like now the whole narrative has become, well, Comey was leading this investigation, which the intelligence of that would have also informed the congressional investigations. That's why it's so important. And the fact that, you know, he was fired, it makes it look like there's, uh, you know, potentially something to hide there and something that the Trump administration is insecure about. Yeah. And I, and I think it is a situation where, there's at least the perception that the cover-up is worse than the crime. I mean, I've I've talked about this quite a bit. I've done a lot of digging into some of the the stuff that that people are looking at the evidence of links between Trump's campaign or Trump's associates and uh, Russia, including in Ukraine and Russia, related to Paul Manafort's work. I mean, this is the former uh, Trump campaign chairman. His work not long before he went to work for Trump on behalf of this uh, sort of Russia-aligned politician. And political party, the former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. And like, I just haven't found a ton of evidence there that or, or even like a sort of trail of evidence that would lead to any suggestion of a smoking gun. And some of the other folks, Paul Manafort is a focus, by the way, of the of the FBI investigation. Some of the other folks that are being looked at Carter Page. I mean, the dude is a clown. The dude is not going to engineer any kind of devious plot. Like at best, he is what Russians, uh, uh, what is known in Russian intelligence as sort of a useful idiot. But I don't even think he's useful because he had so little clout within Trump world. Mike Flynn. Yeah, there could be something there, but I just haven't seen it. And my colleagues, including our former colleague Isaac Arntruff, who dug deeply into some of the work that is now at the center. Flynn, incidentally, just got subpoenaed by the Senate Intelligence Committee. They want to know about his work on behalf of this Dutch company that was uh, owned by a Turkish businessman. Well, we looked into that and like, yeah, there are some Russia ties there, but like there's nothing that suggests anywhere close to the collusion that is what Democrats are hoping for. Roger Stone, another guy who's a focus of, of, of investigation, it's just not uh, not like does not have the sort of gravitas to be able to like pull anything like this off. And so I think if the if he had just let if Trump had just let the investigation run its course or even as as uh, Nancy and Ileana suggested, gotten rid of Comey early on and let's 
another FBI director pursue this investigation, I think they would have been a lot better off than where they are right now, which are all these questions about politically motivated firings to cover up some kind of alleged uh, wrongdoing. Ken, I don't want to be presumptuous here, but the FBI is looking for someone to uh, take charge of this. Have you have you sent in a resume? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've gotten a lot of heat on Twitter because I have like <laughs> suggested this. That, like, there's there's not a lot of there there, and people are like, how do you know what the FBI knows? And I'm like, you know what? Not only do I think that there's not a lot of there there, but I don't even think that the FBI. I mean, I've talked to these people in Eastern Europe who worked with Manafort. On behalf of some of these like pro-Russian oligarchs and political parties, and they have not been contacted by the FBI. I literally talked to one of these guys yesterday. This is like a key guy based on like everything we know about this investigation. And he has not spoken to the FBI or congressional investigators now, like charitably, maybe they're holding back and they're trying to build the case and they don't want to, you know, go to the targets yet. But I mean, everything that we know about the timetable of this and they're subpoenaing the actual principles and yet they haven't talked to these key people. I like I, I not only do I not see an evidence of a smoking gun, I don't even see evidence of the FBI is like looking necessarily for a smoking gun. Let's let's shift. You mentioned the uh, Congress briefly there and let's shift over there. I, the part of the um Part of the the big blow up in this reaction is that congressional Democrats have gone bonkers over the last couple of days about Trump doing this. There's been statement after statement. There have been TV appearance after TV appearance about uh, Trump's decision to fire the FBI director, you know, a few weeks after Comey announced at an open congressional hearing that he was investigating Trump associates and, and people who were part of the Trump campaign. So are Democrats being hypocrites here for for criticizing this after having said for months that they had lost confidence in Comey's ability to direct the FBI after what he did during the election, the statements he made, the, the letter he sent the week before the election about the, the uh, Huma Abedin emails? Are they out on a limb here? I think this falls into the category of uh... – self-inflicted wounds because of the uh, impulsive and reckless manner in which Trump did this. He gave Democrats ammunition to say this was politically motivated, coming as it did after uh, after Comey's testimony, which I also think was, uh, was somewhat misguided. Um, but I think Trump, because of the way he did this, um, where he received memos from the Justice Department that very much uh, looked like an ex, po- ex post fast facto justification for the firing of um, the FBI director. Um, he, he set this up as the perfect storm for Democrats to walk into and make political hay out of. And they're politicians. Uh, this is what they're going to do with this. But yeah, of course, I, I don't think Democrats harbored any love for Comey, but he made it very easy. I think the president made it very easy for them uh, to create a political nightmare for him um, by by what he did. Well, I think the other thing that that people keep pointing to also is that, you know, it took the White House 18 days to fire um, the former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Um, And, you know, even though uh, Sally Yates, who used to work for the um, the former acting uh, deputy attorney general, 
Department of Justice had told the White House that he could be compromised um, by the Russians and there were these ties. And they took a long time to get that done. People close to the White House and in the White House say that's because they had to investigate and do due process. Um, So you can believe that. But then at the same time, they like managed to fire Comey within, you know, a matter of days uh, once they had the rationale. And so it's just not really consistent. The ironic thing in all of this, as our uh, colleague Michael Cruz has aptly chronicled, is that Trump, for all his uh, television persona of being the firer, you know, that was his catchphrase, you're fired on The Apprentice. Uh, and for the number of folks who he's fired in very high profile ways uh, during his uh, this short uh, tenure as president, he does not like firing people. And it's almost always something that he delegates to someone else, including in this case, Keith Schiller, the one who delivered the letter. But looking back over the course of the campaign, Jared Kushner dropped the axe on Corey Lewandowski. Uh, you know, it was never it was never Trump who had his fingerprints directly on the firing that we uh, our sources tell us sort of makes him uncomfortable. He doesn't like the confrontation, ironically. But if I could get back to your question, Scott, which uh, Eliana and Nancy did an excellent job of sort of contextualizing, but I'll just come right out and answer the question and say, yes, Democrats are for me. Democrats yeah. are, uh, are, are look, very hypocritical in, in their criticism here. But look, so too the Republicans. One of the, one of the sort of um, ex post facto, if I may use uh, Eliana's coinage there, uh, explanations that I've heard a lot of is that like Comey had become too political and he had become too much of a public face. And I'm like, Republicans were like begging him to like testify and come out and 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 uh, and be aggressive in the investigation of Hillary Clinton's handling of classified information during the campaign. And now they're turning around and saying that he was too public of a face and he was too political. Like, give me a break. Well, Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said herself at the at the White House press briefing the other day, right, that there. Uh, there's a difference between statements made during a campaign and statements made while president of the United States, while governing, which uh, I think some would argue there is not, in fact, a difference. They're just statements. And including and, the judges who are hearing the challenges to the travel ban, the executive order, who are looking very closely at Trump's uh, calls for a Muslim immigration ban and continuing to hold him to account over that, even as he says that's not what this executive order was intended to do. That, that's exactly right. And I think I, she did not put it in these words, but I think essentially what Huckabee Sanders was admitting at that point is that uh, – it's a lot easier to get away with being a hypocrite if you don't have any power, which is the situation that Democrats find themselves in in Congress right now. <laughs> What's that expression about uh, you campaign in poetry and you govern in hypocrisy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I also just think just one more thing on the Comey thing. You know, Trump had you know, at the beginning of the week, we were talking internally at Politico how it seemed like a really quiet week and there wasn't a lot on the schedule. Um, and it's just interesting that he chose to fire Comey at this particular time because, you know, last week the House finally passed the health care bill. Um, you know, Trump announced that he was going to go on this first foreign trip. It was sort of another instance of like things going pretty well for them and then um, them kind of stepping into it into a major political landmine. And you could say like whether or not him firing Comey was good or bad it had huge political reverberations and wasn't done in the most artful manner, as Eliana said, both in terms of the timing and just in the way that it was sort of announced and rolled out. And I think it was another instance of them stepping on their own success. Um, You know, they had a successful end of the week and then here we are. Well, we've talked about this before, right? At every turn, 
the Republican legislative agenda, which is very long, there's a lot of items on it, uh, keeps getting subsumed by events, more and more bizarre. Uh, and this is just the latest example. I, I somehow doubt that Senate Republicans wanted this hanging over them, <laughs> the prospect of having to confirm a new FBI director as they are starting the process of working out their own version of, of health care legislation now that the House has passed theirs. Or, or maybe it gives them cover to do that without the attention. I mean, there's so many, there's a lot of, uh, I think, like efforts to see strategy in in Trump's moves and decision making, uh, some sort of, you know, devious plan to like change the narrative or to distract from something when in fact, the most uh, the most obvious explanation is usually the right one. As I said, in starting this segment, it's Trump being Trump. It's not any kind of like strategic uh, sort of mastermind uh, uh, scenario. There was some speculation floating around on Wednesday that maybe it wasn't coincidental that the first – there was a, a vote in the Senate and it was the first time that a Republican attempt to use the Congressional Review Act, which is a mechanism to undo executive rules and regulations uh, that were promulgated – in this case, that were promulgated at the end of the Obama administration. And the first one of those efforts – uh, to fail happened on Wednesday, and it failed because, among others, John McCain, a very agitated-looking John McCain from the from the looks of the C-SPAN cameras, uh, voted against it after an argument with uh, Senate Republican leaders, and then kind of stalked away. And it, you know, there, there are people talking about hey, these these votes are in some ways. It has to do with methane regulation. There's environmental issues at stake, and Senate, you know, different senators have different opinions of this. But these votes are also there's no filibuster. They're very uh, good proxies for you know just like how how good the parties are feeling about sticking together at this point. And on this one, we saw them tearing away a little bit. And I wonder if that is going to reflect back on. What happens next in healthcare? What happens next on confirming this new FBI director? What on the Russia investigation? Exactly, special, special prosecutors, special counsel. Well, that's another special. question: Are we more likely to see a, a special uh, special counsel or or an independent commission or something like that at this point? I mean, that would be the ultimate test, and certainly, you know, to your point, and I, I agree that there have been indications that Republicans or so, certain Republicans, including the aforementioned John McCain, Lindsey Graham, are sort of threatening to break away and to take. A harder line on some of this uh, Trump Russia stuff. I Richard Burr, Richard Burr. Well, that was the surprising yeah. one. I mean, to this point, I would have said no. That's just like McCain and you know Rubio and Graham sort of you know uh, 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 raising a ruckus uh, to sort of you know get attention or get what they want on a given thing. But like, there's no threat of like the party, uh, you know, the, the party sort of splitting on this issue. But like for Richard Burr to come out and 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 you know take uh, a hard line against the Comey firing and and you know some of this other stuff going on. I mean, he's the he, he's like a critical player in the he's a chair of the Senate yeah. Intelligence Committee. So he's, he like it's a, it's sort of important. And I don't think he and would speak out of turn. Mike Flynn to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee. So and uh, subpoenaed uh, Flynn's documents. So at I mean th- this is my point about the way I think Trump um, in taking aggressive action on one thing can undermine himself. Um, you know, Burr, I think Burr is perhaps the most. Uh, colorful example of that uh, when it comes to the Russia investigation. 
But the thing that I wonder is there have been sort of this group of senators um, from the get-go that have been critical of Trump in different ways and on different issues. You know, the makeup of the group kind of changes. But, you know, it's McCain and Graham and uh, Susan Collins and Ben Sass and Rubio um, and now Burr. But I feel like until I see like larger numbers of Republican senators raising questions or breaking with Senate leadership, I feel like so far they're still largely following falling in line behind him. And actually, you know, doing something, not just coming out and saying something. Right. So, you know, to Ileana's point, is subpoenaing Mike Flynn an example of that? Well, I don't know. I mean, so, you know, Mike Flynn was probably going to he, – he was like, a, like a, as I said, like a, one of the four folks who were – who are being who are targets of this investigation or being closely examined in this investigation? So it sort of stands to reason that they would eventually, you know, call him to testify and, and uh, you know subpoena potentially subpoena his documents. But like going further, some of these folks going to actually support uh, calls for uh, right. you know special prosecutor. My, I don't and, know, and I don't think I'm, I'm not sure if Mike Flynn would have been called uh, the day after Comey's firing. Right, I think Good that point. sent a pretty clear message. In the House, it's been. It seems like most congressional Republicans, with a few exceptions, were playing this cautiously. No one, or very few, I should say, are directly coming out and calling for um, a, a special counsel. I think is the is the technical term. Uh, there, there were a few in some battleground seats, like Barbara Comstock and Carlos Corbello, folks who who should be said, denounced Trump during the 2016 campaign, too. These are Republicans in swing districts. Uh, but then, you know, Kyle Cheney, one of our congressional reporters, uh, said there, there are about a dozen Republicans who kind of cracked the door a little bit in their statements uh, after Comey was firing, cracked the door to, to a, a special counsel or, or uh, some sort of independent commission. Um, folks saying, you know, that it's, it's contingent on a new FBI director of unimpeachable character and credentials being, being appointed and things like that. But they're kind of, you can see them sort of setting up the, uh, the mechanism by which they can start to move toward, toward supporting something a little more drastic like that. Yeah, I mean, you saw uh, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, re- Republican from suburban Philadelphia, woo, obligatory mention, uh, who who released a statement uh, critical of the firing of Comey. It's important to know Fitzpatrick is not just from sort of a, a swing district, but additionally that he's a former FBI agent, so he knows of what he speaks, uh, and he praised Comey, and, and he, he also said in his uh, statement that it's critical that an independent leader be nominated to lead the FBI so that the agency can continue uh, to look into the, the stuff that it's looking into, suggestion being uh, Trump-Russia. So, uh, you know, I think, well, the, either way, the, the, the battle to confirm whoever Trump nominates is going to be rather a, a vicious one. And there's some interesting names that are being floated out there of folks who, you know, run the gamut from being uh, really independent folks who have given, who have shown a willingness to go after uh, politicians in, in high offices like uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, for instance, uh, to folks who are just straight up Trump loyalists like a Rudy Giuliani or Chris Christie, for instance. Yeah, I think the 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 interesting thing that I'm watching here, I, I think the idea that um, like Trump, we talked about this before, Trump's poll numbers are not great right now, but he still is quite popular among Republicans. And I think that's been overplayed to some extent how much that matters because President Obama was still very popular among Democrats when uh, when 
his party got shellacked in midterm elections in 2010 and 2014. But I do think the important part of this is that Trump is still popular among his base, and that base is what confers power to his party in Congress. There's so many people from safe seats there who give Republicans majorities in the House and Senate. And they're the ones who are going to be voting to confirm this next FBI director. They're the ones who could potentially end up voting to impanel an independent commission or something like that to investigate uh, Trump-Russia ties. So I, I think that's where you know Trump's continued popularity with that base starts to matter. It's it's whether it, you know how far into the congressional Republicans seeps this this idea that they might need to take additional steps. And that and that like you know perhaps colors what's going you know what'll happen uh, in the, in the coming eighteen months or whatever it is, but not necessarily on election day. It's sufficient for the swing voters and the folks who are not. Uh, self-identified hardcore Republicans to be extremely dissatisfied, uh, that would be sufficient potentially for a, a massive Democratic wave to produce a massive Democratic wave in the midterms. All right. After that double-length segment on James Comey and the FBI and the Trump administration, let's jump into a different area. Our second data point is 5,000. And that, as reported by uh, Eliana and our colleague Brian Bender, is the upper range of the number of troops President Trump's military advisors are recommending he send to Afghanistan in a surge to help stabilize the country, which also would happen to stand in direct opposition to a campaign pledge Trump was making just months ago. So, Eliana, you and Brian reported the story about this military decision looming over Donald Trump. Is this the most meaningful way so far that Trump the candidate statements have collided with the plans of Trump the president? Yeah, well, it's a little bit premature to say that um, his campaign pledges have collided with what he's going to do. Um, his national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, uh, was supposed to brief him on what um, I'm told is a unanimous recommendation from his cabinet to um, do what the military is calling a, a mini surge in Afghanistan. If the president signs off on this, um, it will certainly contradict um, what he pledged on the campaign trail um, in the sense that he um, he has long said that he thinks that in uh, America's involvement in the in the Middle East is a waste of time and treasure. He wants to get out, um, reinvest in uh, domestic priorities. He was tweeting um, in 2013 that the Afghan regime has, quote, zero appreciation for what um, Americans have done there. Uh, let's get out. Time to go. And um, I was told that when the president visited on his first visit to Cent CENTCOM in Tampa in um, early February, he started hearing from the military that um, the, the U.S.'s positions both in Iraq and in Afghanistan have been deteriorating and that the military view was not only can you not get out of uh, or unilaterally uh, pull out of either country, but that you actually – that he, he actually needs to do more. And he didn't like what he heard. Um, that's tough for an America first president. Exactly, right? like, exactly. Um, and now he has um, he you know he's invited the view, that military view into his cabinet in the um, in the form of his national security advisor McMaster, Secretary of Defense um, Jim Mattis, and they're telling him, um, yeah, you need to surge troops in Afghanistan. Um, so, if in fact he signs off on this plan, um, that will be a departure. Um, you know, I think uh, we pointed out in the piece that he did talk a lot on the campaign trail about um, 
you know, combating terrorism, wiping out ISIS and al-Qaeda. I'm not sure that he uh, fully understood that that might involve um, putting more troops on the ground. Um, But I think, you know, he's he's running into um, the difficulties of governing and the fact that um, and and Obama, of course, uh, had that as well, um, where he uh, he continued to do a lot of the things that he had derided uh, um, in the of practices he had derided um, that begun under George W. Bush. But uh, Trump may face the same sort of difficult decisions um, right now. And part of the reason of that, as as you say, is that he is he's in in some cases on, on this one, he's surrounded himself with advisors who are pushing him in a direction that is not the not the one that he he has outlined for himself. And H.R. McMaster uh, on on this issue, at least, is turning out to be one of them. This is the national security advisor that was appointed to replace Michael Flynn when when Flynn uh, was canned. Uh, what's McMaster's kind of position within the White House at this point? You know, there were a few reports that came out this week that McMaster has butted heads with the president, um, not only um, about Afghanistan, but uh, about a couple of other national security issues. And I think to totally understand what's happening, um, you have to understand where McMaster comes from and what his view of the world is. Um, He's one of the leading counterinsurgency strategists. And the view, uh, you know, counterinsurgency doctrine involves um, a heavy American presence, you know, not just um, not just sort of uh, behind walls where American soldiers uh, talk amongst themselves and go out during the day um, to fight the enemy, but really um, that has American soldiers embedded within um, native populations, uh, protecting them, and it puts as much of an emphasis on protecting um, population, the population in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, or wherever the doc- doctrine is applied, as it does on killing the enemy. And um, it requires a, a major presence on the ground. And he and David Petraeus, he's a student of Petraeus, he helped Petraeus. Um, uh, revolutionize the army's counterinsurgency doctrine. Um, they're big believers in this when it comes to fighting uh, um, insurgents and terrorists. Not only that, but um, he has a PhD, and his PhD studies were about how um, how the U.S. got embroiled in the Vietnam War and and why why we lost. And he concluded that um, it was in part because the military brass all the way up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff essentially didn't um, they, they told the president what he wanted to hear and they weren't willing to, you know, speak truth to power to repeat the cliche. And so I think he sees it as his job to tell the president things he doesn't want to hear, even if it means that in the end that he gets fired. And so, you know, I was told essentially that his clashes with the president, yeah, they um they have a little bit to do with his personality and his style, but uh, they have a lot to do with the fact that he considered it his job to tell the president things he doesn't want to hear. And that's what he's been doing, um, you know, most visibly with this uh, this plan for Afghanistan. And as you have reported and we've reported previously, Eliana, the uh, McMaster is kind of getting it from both sides. Like he's getting it from the president, but he's also getting it from his own National Security Council, which still has a lot of folks who were loyal to Mike Flynn, who lasted just a very brief time and is now at the center of this Russia investigation, as we aptly chronicled in our first segment. Uh, but there are a lot of Flynn loyalists who were still on the NSC. I wonder, Eliana, how 
how or if you think that that dynamic on the NSC is is sort of playing out in some of these some of these debates about troop levels, if at all. You know, I think McMaster has been pretty successful in uh, pushing out uh, the Flynn hires that he um, thought were problematic. Um, And he just yesterday um, was able to hire his own deputy, um, a military guy named Ricky Waddell, another uh, another military guy with a Ph.D. from Columbia. Though that hire had been stalled by the White House chief of staff, Reince Priebus, McMaster hadn't gone to him and cleared the hire with him because he was told by the president he had hiring and firing authority. But he ended up being able to um, to hire Waddell. And that means that uh, KT McFarland, who was Flynn's deputy, who had then been serving as McMaster's deputy, he he, uh, wanted his own deputy, will be leaving – and she – it looks like if, if she's confirmed by the Senate, she'll be ambassador to Singapore. But she had stayed on as McMaster's deputy, which um, he had said, you know, I want to be able to choose my own – I want my own deputy. Um, but so I think he's been successful in pushing out the Flynn aides um, that he didn't want. And – Although what did we had our reporting about Ezra Cohen and With Watnick. one exception. Yes, with one exception. Um, this is a guy, a young guy who was uh, – the intel director, maybe still is the intel director on the NSC, who McMaster wanted gone. In fact, we reported that some CIA folks yeah. also wanted him gone. Uh, and McMaster actually moved to sideline, if not get rid of him entirely. And uh, Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon got wind of it and took it to the president, who essentially overruled McMaster on that one front. So one, at least one lingering uh, protectee. Uh, from the Flynn regime is still around, but it's interesting to hear that you don't think that that has, uh, you know, that that that, that he has succeeded. Yeah, in sort so of- he he was overruled in this one case, um, but I, I think it deserves to be noted that there are many other Flynn aides that he hasn't moved to fire and that he has kept on um, willingly. You know, I, I think there's there's over a dozen. In fact, most of the National Security uh, Council people are, are people Flynn brought on. One who is actually, um, you know, a, a Putinologist, uh, Fiona Hill, who is widely respected and um, among, in, in the national security community, and uh, Nadia Shadlow. Um, I think, actually, I think that's somebody McMaster brought on. But Fiona Hill is somebody who's been pointed to to um, by many, you know, Bush administration officials as a widely respected critic of Putin. Who McMaster or who, or who uh, Flynn moved to bring on, who McMaster's kept um, as an impressive hire by Flynn. Um, but there are many others. Um, most of the NSC is Flynn people who McMaster has not moved to push out. And is there a Flynn doctrine? And we know there's a Flynn doctrine. One of the reasons, frankly, that there was like a little bit of a, a clash with. Uh, between Flynn and Flynn's folks and the national security and really intelligence establishment was that Flynn is and and many of his acolytes are deeply skeptical of the CIA. But is there a Flynn doctrine when it comes to troop levels and counterinsurgency and some of the folks where you see McMaster starting to exert his authority? You know, I'm actually not sure about that. I've been told that the reason he was dismissed from the DIA um, had very little to do with his ideology. It was that he he was not a great manager and had difficulty managing the organization. And once he was fired, he began telling people it was because he was anti-Obama um, and that his book, which many people have looked to as, you know, 
to um, decipher what his ideology is really was mostly written by um, the co-author Michael Ledeen. And it's very anti-Russia. Um, and, and many national security experts have said um, – those are really Ladine's views, and it's unclear um, the extent to which, though they certainly agree on the threat posed by radical Islam, um, it's unclear um, how much they see eye to eye on the other threats outlined in the book. Nancy, more broadly, the the kind of interpersonal conflict that and and you know people moving at, in and out of the of the White House that we've just been talking about. It's not just. Uh, President Trump's campaign promises regarding foreign policy that this is affecting. All of this under the surface butting of heads and personnel movement is also affecting how uh, uh, many of his policy promises in a lot of other areas are kind of getting carried out or not in the young days of his his administration, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he said pretty conflicting things about uh, a bunch of different policy areas on the campaign trail. And certainly foreign policy was one of them. You know, but on health care, for instance, he said, like, no one would lose their health insurance or people with pre-existing conditions would be covered. At one point, he made it sound like maybe... Um, you know, he would expand Medicaid. And the House legislation, the House health care bill that passed, um, you know, didn't do a bunch of those things. And so I think that's certainly something to watch, you know, if we ever get to other things like tax reform or if there's ever an infrastructure package, sort of how he handles his um, campaign promises versus what he's actually doing. But I also wanted to ask Eliana one thing, because I feel like one, one theme that we see in the White House is people just having a difficult time um, standing up to Trump. And we've certainly seen that with this week with the Comey firing, that, you know, there was some dissension in the White House ranks among top advisors. But for the most part, Trump went ahead and did it, and he did it pretty quickly. And I'm wondering, you know, you're saying that McMaster stands up to Trump and gives him the bad news, and that's where their clashes come from. Does that happen, you know, frequently in the national security space with the other advisors or other people on the National Security Council? I think McMaster and Mattis, they're two of the people who said we uh, demanded freedom to hire and fire their own staffs. And they're two of the people who are, I don't know if stand up to Trump is the right word, but they're two of the people who feel comfortable uh, airing their views if and when they differ from those of the president. I think that's as good a place as any to leave off. Eliana, thank you for leading us through that. That was fascinating. Thanks, Scott. Ken, thank you. Fun time as always. And Nancy, thank you as always. Oh, thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, if you enjoy the show, please rate, subscribe, and write a written review of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Uh, The more feedback we receive, the higher we rise in the charts, and the more people discover the Nerdcast. Also, here's that survey URL again, politico.com slash podcast survey. It'll take just a couple minutes, and it's going to help Politico create even better podcasts and improve this one. Uh, And also, remember, if you have questions, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, as always, thank you to our listeners, thank you to our panel, and thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, Nerdcast illustrator Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer Zach Montalaro. We'll talk to you again next week.